This podcast is a production of Journey, a church community inspiring people to live big. For more information, please visit cincyjourney.org. Thanks, Woody. God bless you. Sometimes saying he's been faithful in service for a long time is another way of saying he's ready for the Antiques Roadshow. <clears throat> Woody and I have worked together a lot. Joe and I have worked together a lot over the last few years. Um, and uh, I appreciate the relationships that we share, and I appreciate your taking time to let me be here this morning. Um, so we're starting a new series today. Pastor Joe's going to finish that series over the next three weeks. It'll be a four-week series called The Grind, Um, the dailiness of living the life of Christ, the dailiness of trying to figure out how to navigate as a believer in Jesus, The, the, the stuff that happens to us every day. How do you handle a rough world? Because it's not easy out there. And since... Uh, We disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden. We live in a broken world, a world of sin, a world of brokenness and pain and struggle. And and Christians are not immune from that. As a matter of fact, God has purposely planted us in the midst of a broken world so that we can show them that through the brokenness of Christ and through faith and trust in the blood of Christ on Calvary, we can be made whole from the brokenness and in the midst of the brokenness. And so we're going to talk about the grind over the next few weeks. Um, but I want to start this morning, um, just, just kind of find out where you are. I'd like for you to rate yourself from 0 to 10 in terms of your relationship with coffee. How many of you are coffee drinkers? Okay. Now, here, here's, the, here's the spectrum, okay? Um, zero is, like my wife Gail, she does not drink coffee. She does not like coffee. She doesn't know how to make coffee, and she has no interest in finding out how. Okay? She doesn't care about it. Coffee is not on her plate. It's not on her menu. Okay? So you have a zero. If you're, if you're just not into coffee at all, you don't even like the smell of it. It's, it's messy. It, you know, whatever. You, you're a zero. On the other end of the spectrum, I have a friend who is what I would call a 10 on coffee. He has his own roasting oven. He buys 50-pound sacks of coffee beans from around the world, different places. And as we serve together on a community board, uh, sometimes he'll bring his latest version of whatever coffee he's gotten from Kenya or Nairobi or Nigeria or, or um, you know, Honduras or whatever. He's roasted them, and he'll tell me exactly how many minutes he's roasted them, whether they're light, dark, medium, whether they're blonde, whether, you know, all that stuff. And, and then he puts it through a process to make us cups of coffee fresh right there at the meeting. And there's a process. It has to be put through a press. It has to be held just right. It has to be, he times the time that the hot water is going through the grounds. I mean, all of that, okay? So that's a 10. Somewhere in there, where are you on the scale? Now, I would say like three or four are the people who can drink instant coffee. I can't drink instant coffee. My mother-in-law used to drink Taster's Choice coffee. Now, I'm not putting it down. I'm just saying I can't do that. Okay? But on some days, I feel like a schizophrenic coffee drinker because I have my own coffee maker that has 
It, it, it grinds the beans. And I like to buy fresh beans, and, and I grind the beans and make a fresh pot of coffee, okay? And I like that fresh pot of coffee, and that's really nice. But I say I'm a schizophrenic coffee drinker because I can also take that pot that I've made and pour it into a cup and stick it in the microwave for three or four more days. And my wife says, you know, what is with you, okay? Now, you could be a number nine where you know all the lingo when you pull up to the Starbucks and you know that it's a venti half-calf, white caramel, chocolate, frothing, not frothing, whatever stuff. I don't know all of that stuff because I'm not into Starbucks. I can drink it. It's not my favorite, but, you know. So where do you put yourself? But I want you to think about this morning why the coffee bean is grown and cultivated and harvested and roasted It's there to be ground up, to be bathed in boiling water, to tickle your nostrils and soothe your taste buds. And people pay a great deal of money for the experience of coffee. And I want to compare that today to us as believers, that we are actually in this world, in the plan of God, to endure hardship and struggle, and we're called to suffer with Christ from time to time in order that people will get the aroma and the flavor of Christ from our lives. We start with the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is uh, the greatest apostle to the Gentiles, of course, and we know that he wrote over half the New Testament. Um, And in Acts chapter 9, we find um, his, his story uh, and I'd like to read the first 19 verses. It's, it's a little lengthy passage, but it explains the beginning of Saul's ministry. He was Saul of Tarsus, a Pharisee, a Jewish leader, a person who had gone to the Harvard of the Jewish rabbinical schools. He was at the top of the top. He was at the top of his game. He said, I, I advanced farther than most people my age. I, if it was the law, I knew it, forwards and backwards. He, he, in, in Philippians chapter 3, he brags about his knowledge of the law. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees committed to the Old Testament Jewish law. And this Jesus came along and interrupted everything for Paul. He caused all kinds of grief and trouble for the Jewish leaders, for the Sanhedrin, for the the central nervous system of Jewish religion. And Paul was right in the middle of that. So let's read Acts 9, 1 to 19. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, that's the followers of Christ, whether men or women, he didn't care, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. This guy was serious about wiping out the ways of Jesus. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul... Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. This light knocked him off his donkey or knocked him on the ground. It put him down. It confronted him. Jesus himself confronted Saul of Tarsus. Now the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. He was blind. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. 
For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Now imagine this guy, Saul, who's a type double-A personality. He is, he is zealous and passionate about his religion. And he's having to be led by the hand. He can't see. And he refuses to eat. He's fasting and figuring out what's going on in his life. Now, meanwhile, in Damascus, there's a disciple named Ananias. This is a follower of Jesus. Ananias is a Christian. And the Lord called to him in a vision and said, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered. I've heard a lot, many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. This is the typical response of a person who really is taken off guard by God's call on their life and putting them in a tough situation and they really don't want to go. And, and if you and I are honest, there have been times when we've given the same answer to God, hasn't, haven't there been times? We said, Lord, you know how difficult that's going to be? Lord, you know, you know that person is really mean. <laughs> you, know, you know, that person doesn't want to hear about the gospel. That person doesn't even want to talk to me. And, and God says, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel as well. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Now, that's a key verse in this passage. I will show him how much he must suffer. And as you read the letters of Paul, you find out that Paul went through an awful lot. As you follow his missionary journeys in the book of Acts, you see that there are times that he was stoned and left for dead. He was bitten by serpents. He was confronted by political leaders and and rulers of not only the Jewish faith, but also of Rome as well. He appealed to Caesar on his final trial because the Jews were trying to get him killed near the end of his life. And that took him for an almost three-year journey into the city of Rome where he was waiting trial to stand before Caesar himself. So Ananias goes to the house and enters it. Placing his hands on Saul, he says, now you can see that, that God has been doing a work in Ananias' heart because he says, Brother Saul, <laughs> the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So God's been doing a work in Ananias' heart as well as in Saul's heart. God has softened Ananias' heart and said, look, I need you to, to be the contact person for this guy. I'm bringing him into my kingdom. Yes, I know he's a rebel. Yes, I know he's a problem. He's been, he's been an issue for all of you and for me, but I'm bringing him into the kingdom and I'm going to take what he has passionately done to destroy the church and I'm going to use him to preach the gospel and we're going to see so many thousands and maybe millions of people saved because of this man named Saul of Tarsus who becomes Paul the Apostle. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. After taking some food, he regained his strength. So Saul hangs out with these guys in Damascus. And later on, we find out as he writes some letters to the church, we find out that God actually put Saul, Paul, through some, some serious training because he tells us that at, at some point early in his life here, his early ministry, he went into the desert for three years. And God dealt with him and changed his heart completely and filled him with his spirit and empowered him and strengthened him. And later on in that chapter, chapter 9, 
Um, there's a key verse, for me at least, it's a key verse that says, Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. I want to tell you this morning that our lives prove that Jesus is who he says he is. And it especially is proved as other people watch us navigate the difficulties of life with our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Your witness, my witness, our witness becomes more valid when people watch us go through difficult times. Our witness becomes more real and more more down to earth when they see that we're not made of pie in the sky by and by. We're not so heavenly minded. We're no earthly good. When people see that we can navigate the difficulties of life and still keep our faith and trust God and, and, and know that he's got it, he's got our backs and he's got this thing under control. And, and I may not know the outcome and I may not see how it's going to turn out, but I know God has it in his hands. People are drawn to the great things of life. You know, we're drawn to art and music and I've noticed as, as uh, we've watched the world of art and literature and music and all the, all the world of the arts, I noticed that the things, the, the pieces of art and the works of art that people are drawn to the most are the pieces that come out of the most deeply painful experiences of the artist. Why is that? I think it's because we are drawn to the pathos and the emotion And we realize that the greatest works that mankind brings are works that come out of their own struggle and their own pain. Many, many artists that have become famous and sold millions and millions of dollars worth of art uh, did not become famous until after they were gone. We didn't appreciate them when they were here and we didn't realize what they were giving to us. But after they're gone and after we learn their life story... We're drawn to that because the, of the emotion that's involved in the pain and the struggle that they went through that caused them to put onto the canvas or put onto the, the music score the feelings of humanity. And I want to tell you this morning that, that people are watching your life. They want to know um, if you're living the life for Christ, if you're dealing with real life stuff or if it's just something you're talking about and they don't really see in your life. And like the coffee beans, the difficulties of life that grind you down and grind you up also release the aroma that's inside of you. So of course the question is, if we put you under the microscope and we put you under pressure and start grinding on your life, what aroma is going to come out? Is it going to be the aroma of Christ? Is it going to be an aroma of faith and trust? Or is it for many people going to become an aroma of despair and hopelessness? I was listening to a a public radio program yesterday uh, where they uh, talking about the study that has been done since the early 40s, a study has been done with men in our, in our society. Um, it's, it's, a, it's not a foolproof study because when it first started in the 40s, they did it with Harvard students who were all white males. Um, but they, they began to follow the lives of these men, and it's continued, and there's been some changes throughout the study, and some different profiles have been added. But the whole idea of the study is that that we get to a certain place as men when we start 
separating ourselves emotionally from one another. We become more lonely. Uh, We buy into a false view of masculinity that says we don't cry, we don't feel emotions, we, we detach ourselves. And it is precisely at the point at which that begins to happen in the early teen years in most men's lives that the suicide rate begins to rise. Because we become disconnected from one another as men. We need to understand that the level of despair and hopelessness and the suicide rate in our society today is a direct result of people not knowing how to cope with the difficulties of life and having no one to stand with them in that coping. Jesus comes along and says, look, I I can be what you need. I have suffered for you. I have set you the example. I have hung on the cross for you. Jesus isn't asking you to do anything that he hasn't already done for you. He's asking you to give your life to a cause that's bigger than the world around you, that's, that's sometimes misunderstood by people around you, to a cause that goes beyond this world into eternity. And in our world today, a lot of people don't get that part. It's all right now and what's right in front of my face. Jesus, and we sang about how holy and wonderful he is and the glory of the throne of heaven. I I would love to be able to see what John was trying to describe to us. And one day I will because I've put my trust in Christ. One day I'm going to see that and I'm going to be one of those bowing on that crystal sea and singing holy, holy, holy to him. But that God who is holy and distant and far away and so much other than we are, came to earth as a baby and grew up as a man and died as a redeemer and a savior on a cross, the worst form of death that Rome could deal, the ugliest, most painful way to die as a punishment for sin, as a punishment for treason, as a punishment for any any. A violation of law against the state. But God took that heinous, ugly death and turned it into the most beautiful thing that could ever happen to us. And then he says to us, but you know when you follow me, it will be difficult at times. You will find yourself at odds with the culture. You will find yourself swimming upstream. You will find yourself being ground by the people around you, the expectations around you, the struggles around you. You will find yourself in a human body that will suffer sickness and and failure because of this broken world in which you live. But Jesus says, I will be with you in that, and I will walk the journey with you. And as people watch you lean on me in your journey, lives will be changed because of that. So we become the aroma. The grind releases this aroma. And Paul tells us that in in 2 Corinthians. He says, we are the aroma of Christ. Now, for some people, we're the aroma of life. For others, we're the stench of death. And I want to tell you this morning that people are watching your life, but you're not responsible for their responses. You're not responsible for everybody to like you. You're not responsible for everybody to agree with you. You're not responsible for their salvation. 
You are responsible for your witness and your your trust of the Lord and you navigating whatever circumstances God has put you into so that they can see that and watch that. But their response is going to be based on one of two attitudes. It's going to be a response that says, yes, I see Christ in you and I want some of that. Or it's going to be a response that says, man, I don't want anything to do with that Jesus stuff. You're not responsible for their responses. You're not responsible for their salvation, for the decisions that they make. You are responsible to trust God and show them the way and let them see how a Christian who follows Jesus Christ navigates the difficulties of life. So when you're being ground, when you're going through persecution or suffering or illness or failure or divorce or loss, when your world is not staying together like you planned it to, when your dreams fail and and things are shattered, your trust in God and your faithfulness to Christ It's going to make a difference, not only for you, but for people who are watching you. And my friends, I want you to know, you know, the world sometimes doesn't treat Christians very well today. Our political system and our our legal system and our cultural system and all of that, many times we see a lot of put downs and all those kind of things. But I want to tell you that in the midst of all of those, all of that rhetoric, in the midst of all of that, that talk... I guarantee you that many of those people are watching. They really want to know if we're genuine. They really want to know that we believe what we say we believe. They really want to see that our faith works. My friends, God will use that to bring people out of the chaos of our society, out of the chaos of our culture that's all messed up and out of crazy ideas and doctrines and teachings and thoughts, he will bring people to himself. If he can save a guy like Saul of Tarsus, (laughs) he can save anybody. Saul was an angry man. And here's what happened with Saul, and I think we need to do the same. There are three things that Saul did that we need to do. Saul, who became Paul, traded religion for relationship. See, he was religious. He was a Pharisee. He, He knew all the the words of the law, he knew all the applications of the law, but he was an angry man because he, he experienced persecution as a Jew at the hands of Rome. And he was angry about that. He was angry that they didn't leave him alone to operate in his religion the way he wanted. He was, he was angry because Jesus came along and interrupted his plan. He was angry because people didn't go along with it the way they should and they didn't keep the law and people were just constantly Um, losing it and causing problems. It was too loosey-goosey for Paul. Jesus was too gracious for Paul. Jesus was too loving for Paul. Jesus let the, you know, the the dregs of society come to his meetings. (laughs) That's not how the Pharisees operated. They wanted the best of the best and the cream of the crop. But Jesus drew these crowds and it just irritated Paul. Got under his skin. We've got to do away with this. They're threatening the religion. When your religion is threatened, you will do some crazy things. And that's why I tell you, you've got to trade your religion for a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus knocked him off his horse on the Damascus road. He said, Saul, wake up. I love you, and I want to use you. But like A.W. Tozer said, I doubt that, uh, that God can use a man greatly until he hurts him deeply. Saul had to be broken. His spirit had to be broken. He had to find out that this Jesus that he had heard about 
really is who he says he is. That the, the tomb is really empty. That the death on the cross was not a defeat. It was actually a victory for the kingdom of God. Jesus did it in a roundabout way, a different way. He didn't handle it the way they wanted the Messiah to handle it. But he handled it in the way God could love humanity into his kingdom. He traded his religion for relationship. And then Paul chose to suffer for Christ and his kingdom. Now, God said, remember what what Jesus said in that key verse in in chapter 9. I'm going to show him how much he has to suffer. And I think he did that. I think in those three years when he was in the desert, God really got a hold of Paul's heart and said, look, it's not going to be easy for you, but I want you to be the key point person that's going to let the world in on my salvation. I'm not going to limit it only to the Jews. I want everybody. I want without exception, I love every person and I want them in my kingdom. And you're going to have to go through some stuff, Paul. And I think at that point, Paul signed up for that and said, I'm willing to do that. He chose to suffer. So when people opposed him, he was okay with that. When people tried to stone him, I mean, it hurt a little, but he was okay with that. He trusted God. And he was willing to stand before kings and governors and Caesar himself. Because he had signed up to walk with Christ. He tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, we bear in our bodies the suffering and the marks of Jesus Christ. And at other places he says, I want to suffer with Christ so that I someday may reign with him and be in glory with him. He knew the prerequisite. He knew that you don't get there without the tough stuff. I want to tell you this morning that you can choose to suffer for Christ and you can learn like Paul to be content in every circumstance. And then finally, Paul became a model for others to follow. At one point he says, follow me as I follow the Lord. Follow my example. He mentored many people. He started churches all over the the Roman Empire, in, in, in urban centers all over the empire. He mentored a young man named Timothy who took over as a pastor in Ephesus. And he mentors us today through the letters of the New Testament. And as you look at the life of Paul through the next few weeks in this idea of the grind, of the dailiness of living the life, you're going to see. You're going to see the aroma of Christ come out of Paul. And you're going to feel the presence of Jesus in his life and in his ministry and how much he cared about and loved the people that he had brought into the kingdom of God and the churches that he had started. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. Paul became a model. And I want to tell you this morning, you can become a model. Uh, As Brother Woody said, I pastored in Hamilton for 29 years. And um, that whole time, there's been a lady at the Eaton Road Church named Arlene. In 2004, Arlene was diagnosed with breast cancer. So for the entire year of 2005, she spent radically treating the cancer. Chemotherapy, radiation, double mastectomy. And for a few years, she was cancer-free, and we rejoiced. We prayed over her numerous times. We prayed along with her. We cried with her. We laughed with her. We, we shared in her life. And she, she's a very quiet person. She's an unassuming kind of person. But she has a strong faith that some days I wonder if I could ever have a faith that strong. 
In 2009, the cancer returned as ovarian cancer. And since 2009, Arlene has been fighting this cancer on and off now. She's still fighting it. She's still taking some medications for that. I talked to her yesterday, got her permission to tell you about her story. But I want to tell you about Arlene that because of the cancer that she's had, and and if you would think about anybody in the world that shouldn't have cancer, it'd be Arlene because she's so sweet, she's so unassuming, she's so kind. She loves people. Uh, She just, you know, she will take anybody under her wing. She will give till there's nothing left to give. If you need something from someone, you call Arlene, you'll get it. Why would God allow cancer to happen to someone like Arlene? But I want you to know that in the process of her having this cancer, doors have opened for her, and she has spoken to more people. She's had conversations at a deeper level than I as a pastor could even aspire to. She has sat in chemo rooms and shared prayer shawls with people that the church makes and seen lives changed and seen people come to Christ and she's seen families come back together. She has been able to minister to people in her quiet way over these years and she's made a huge difference. As a matter of fact, the prayer shawl ministry that the church still has and still carries on um, actually began as a part of a response to Arlene coming back from the the chemo doctor's office and saying, you know, there's people in there that are getting chemo all the time, and we're always cold when we're getting chemo treatments. The IVs make us cold, and we need some blankets or something to put on our legs or put on our arms. And that prayer shawl ministry kind of grew out of that need. And I can't tell you the number of prayer shawls that I have anointed and prayed over at the front of the church, and we've sent out to people that we don't even know. I mean, I, I can't tell you. There's been I think we're up now to almost 400 that have gone out of that church. People's lives being changed. People coming to Christ. People being healed. People not being healed, but in their process of of ending their lives, going through with much more peace and without so much struggle and knowing that the Lord is with them and that they are good to go when it's time to go. All because of this lady. And one of the things that she reminded me of when I talked to her yesterday, she says, well, you know, you remember... Every time I had a test, every time I had a treatment, every time I had a surgery, every time anything was going to happen, I came forward and you anointed me and we prayed. And she said, it's the prayers that have kept me going. Because when she first was diagnosed in 2004, they told her she might live for a year. It's now 2018. And I asked her how she's doing. She said, well, I had to adjust my medication a little bit, but I'm doing pretty good. She's got the great attitude, and she has witnessed to more people in her quiet way. Friends, people are watching you. As the grind lets the aroma of Christ come out of your life, let him open doors that otherwise you would never walk through. Let him use you to touch people's lives. Let him use you as the aroma of the knowledge of Christ. I want to tell you, every believer is going to be called upon to go through something for Jesus. You're going to go through some difficulties. If you haven't already, you will. You know, they say there's, we're in three stages of life. We're either entering into a problem, in the middle of a problem, or coming out of a problem. So wherever you are today, God wants you to submit to the grind. Don't complain about it. Let the dailiness and the struggle of a broken world and a culture that doesn't understand us, let that grind produce the aroma of Christ in you and see what God will do 
as people respond to your witness of faith and trust in Christ. Father, I pray today that you will just help us to welcome the difficulties that come, the trials, the struggles. God, help us to understand that that nothing happens to us that doesn't pass through your hand first. Help us to trust you with that. God, I pray that you would help us to really choose today to trade our religion for a relationship with you that will sustain us through difficult times. Help us, Lord, to choose to walk with Christ and bear some wounds for the kingdom. And Lord, I pray that you will make us a model that someone else can follow that will lead them to Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Thank you.